0: Armstrong started performing in Chicago. There's a famous story Earl Hines used to tell about after he sang for the first time, he said the guys would stick their heads out of the window when it rained, hoping to catch a cold so they would sound like Louis Armstrong. I mean, everything he did was imitated. He was the one who just showed you what this music could be. Before Louis Armstrong, there was at least one great player in Sidney Bechet, but it was a music that came from a specific community at a specific time. What Armstrong shows is that this is a way of playing music. This is not just a folk art. This can encompass every kind of human emotion. And the trick, if you want to play this music, is not to copy me, or if you're a white guy, to copy a black guy because you think he's more authentic. It's to find yourself. And when people understood that, jazz, by the early 1930s, became international. And once you understand that the music is that capacious, that huge, that it can enfold every kind of musician, then it becomes a, a world achievement. It's no longer something from a specific time and place.
1: That was award-winning jazz critic Gary Giddens talking about the one and only Louis Armstrong. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Today, Gary Giddens and I celebrate the legacy of the great Louis Armstrong, whose birthday we mark today. Born on August 4, 1901 in New Orleans. Louis Armstrong is one of America's great artists. It's impossible to exaggerate his contributions to the development of jazz, both as an instrumentalist and as a singer. He was a virtuoso trumpet player whose improvisations opened the way for solo instrumental performances. He improvised as a singer too, bending melody and lyric in a way that revealed new dimensions to songs. Louis Armstrong had hits in every decade, beginning in the 1920s and going straight through to the 1960s. He was a charismatic performer who played an average of 300 concerts a year, traveling around the world and touring Africa, Europe, and Asia under the sponsorship of the U.S. State Department. He was the force behind the Louis Armstrong Educational Foundation, which creates music programs in schools and libraries throughout his adopted city of New York. Despite Armstrong's considerable fame and success, he lived in a modest house in Corona, Queens, and would hang out with kids on a stoop. Armstrong died in his sleep there in 1971. He never stopped playing music. When it comes to talking about jazz in general, and Louis Armstrong in particular, it's hard to do better than Gary Giddens, a critic who perfectly balances his passion, intelligence, and knowledge. He's a longtime columnist for The Village Voice, an author, essayist, producer, and educator who has won a National Book Critics Circle Award in criticism for Visions of Jazz, a Peabody Award for Broadcasting, six ASCAP Deems Taylor Awards, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Jazz Journalists Association. Gary Giddens has written many books, among them a biography of Louis Armstrong called Satchmo, the genius of Louis Armstrong. Giddens once wrote that Louis Armstrong is the single most important person in the development of jazz. But when I spoke with Gary at his New York City office, he wanted to amend that statement.
0: I would go further and say in American music, because he codified swing, and because when Armstrong came along, a lot of the best black musicians thought that the blues was a fad, a fashion like ragtime. And these were very sophisticated musicians and they thought that maybe the blues was just something that was going to go the way of ragtime and that they were going to be playing a music based on much more sophisticated harmonies and so forth. Armstrong proved that not to be the case. And when he came to New York in 1924, the first rehearsal he did with Fletcher Henderson, uh, Don Redman, the arranger who was writing non-blues pieces, which I would actually characterize as anti-blues pieces in some respects, said that as soon as he heard Armstrong stand up and play a chorus of trumpet on a piece called Copenhagen, he knew that he would have to revise his entire approach to the orchestra. Uh, All these musicians in the band who thought of him as a rube, a southerner, uh, a guy who parted his hair funny, and talking about people like Coleman Hawkins and Buster Bailey and guys who wore suits tailored around their bodies and who looked just cooler than could be, and was so hip and sophisticated in new classical music, and were just so much a part of the New York elite. And uh, Armstrong, to them, was like a country boy. And they all, all of them, changed the way they played. They all started bringing in the blues tonality. Now, the one that you could really see it most dramatically was Duke Ellington, because Ellington had been writing a kind of fancy polyphonic orchestrated music in the middle 20s. None of it is listened to anymore. And then after he hears Armstrong in, he goes out and hires Bubber Miley. Interestingly, a trumpet player who is formed in the crucible of the blues, but is not an Armstrong imitator, which was not hard to find at that time. He had his own very distinct style. And at that point, when Ellington accepts that the blues is the basic scale on which jazz is composed...
1: Let me interrupt you. Can you explain what you mean by the blues scale, by the blues tonality?
0: Uh, you know a lot of different ways to define the blues. The blues as a form is a 12-bar form, sometimes 16 bars, sometimes 8, but basically a 12-bar form with three chord changes. Um, But the blues is also, of course, a feeling going throughout history. People have always talked about feeling blue. And it's also a scale, a a tonality, where notes are pitched just left of center. uh, in In the cracks between two adjacent white keys on the piano. And that sound, that tonality is is the harmonic and in some ways the melodic basis of the music. And when Ellington realized that, when Henderson realized that, that's when jazz really becomes very much alive.
1: Armstrong, as you point out, is unique in the sense of his impact as an instrumentalist and his impact as a vocalist. His singing is astounding.
0: He's the only figure in Western musical history who was equally influential as an instrumentalist and as a vocalist. And this is a snobbish response, I suppose, but it always amazes me that so many singers in the 20s who we don't listen to anymore, who were very corny singers, Rudy Valley being the most conspicuous example, got it immediately when they heard him. They just knew. They knew that their style of singing was gonna have to change. I mean, Rudy Valley who became a wonderfully adept comic actor and you know, he created the role of the boss in um, How to Succeed in Business, and mm-hmm. he, had, he had quite a career. But as a singer, hardly anybody ever listens to him anymore. He sounded always like he had a holding in his nose, very very nasal and very corny. And yet he wrote the introduction to Armstrong's first book, Swing That Music, in which he's, in which he's, he's a little condescending. He says, this may be difficult for you to understand that this man with his very gravelly voice has influenced every single singer in America. But he did. He influenced country singers. He influenced pop singers. Bing Crosby was the first guy to really take it into the mainstream. It's what Artie Shaw was referring to when he said Bing Crosby is the first hip white person born in the United States. He became friendly with Armstrong very early in the game and realized that that time, that paying attention to where the one was, could transform you. It could indemnify you against any song you sang. I remember when I started writing my Bing Crosby biography and I was talking to a musician very much a modernist, and he said, oh, Crosby, you know, I love Crosby, and I said, really, I'm I'm sort of surprised, and he said, well, where do you think we got the songs from, he said, in the 1940s and 50s, when we were coming up, he was the only guy on the radio, the white mainstream pop singers, who had time, you know, a lot of other singers who were very popular, like Perry Como, really had terrible time, he's a good ballad singer, but that was about it, but Crosby, no matter what he sang, you could always hear that that won and this was one of the things he brought to music but the main thing the thing that revolutionized the industry not just the style of the singers was that it was no longer the music the song that was the main thing it was the singer you know before Armstrong the industry was run by music publishers and all they cared about was pushing sheet music and if you wanted to record you sang the sheet music as it was written hopefully you had a decent voice Good pitch, pleasant timbre, whatever, but you you surrendered to the song. When Armstrong came along, I mean, he sings songs like Stardust and Body and Soul that everybody in the world knows, and he completely recomposes them on the record. Now, he creates a standard for improvisation that very few singers would ever be able to match, but every singer understood suddenly that you could embellish. I mean, Frank Sinatra wasn't an improviser per se, but he was a great embellisher. He knew how to change a note to make a phrase better, more powerful, and this became standard. Before Armstrong, the music publishing hold was so great that you were not allowed to change pronouns in the lyrics, which is one of the reasons there are so few women recording in that period. So Bing Crosby, for example, recorded a tune, There Ain't No Sweet Man Worth the Salt of My Tears. Now, five years later, after Armstrong, two years later, he would have sang There Ain't No Sweet Gal. Same one syllable. But no, you listen to Bing's record and it's There Ain't No Sweet Man Worth the Salt of My Tears because you could not change the pronoun. After Armstrong, after Crosby, after that great changeover that came about in the early years of jazz in the 20s, when it became popular in the 30s, the power completely changed to the artist.
1: Armstrong certainly transcended a lot of the material, though. In the case of Stardust, I mean, he took that gem, and oh, God, what he does with
0: Stardust, I think, is amazing.
1: I love that song. I love Hoagy Carmichael. Oh,
0: yeah. You know, there were a number of songwriters who hated musicians doing that. Richard Rodgers was notorious. I mean, he actually attacked Ella Fitzgerald's magnificent Rodgers and Hart album because, you know, if I wanted that note to be that note, I would have written it that way. Jerome Kern was similar when he died, uh, Kern's estate thought they were doing his ghost a favor by suing Dizzy Gillespie, who recorded four Kern tunes in a bebop arrangements. Too much liberties were taken. But there were other songwriters like Hoagie Carmichael or John Green who wrote Body and Soul. I met John Green in the, I guess, early 80s, late 70s. And I asked him rather nervously, how did you feel about Coleman Hawkins's Body and Soul? It was one of the supreme jazz improvisations. And hardly a note in it is from Johnny Green's actual song even though it's called Body and Soul and he gets the mechanical royalty and he said oh how do you think I felt it you know what it feels like to realize that something you wrote can inspire a genius like Coleman Hawkins that's a very rare attitude among those songwriters they thought that what they wrote they wanted it engraved in stone and so jazz was troublesome so you know Armstrong his Stardust, you know it's Stardust, you know it's Hoagy Carmichael, but it's not like anybody else's.
2: Sometimes I wonder why I spend such lonely night, oh baby lonely night, dreaming of a song, melody, memory, and I'm once again with you, when our love was new, oh It each gets an inspiration, now that, baby, you know, long ago. up mm-hmm. oh, beside a garden wall. When stars are bright and you are in my arms, baby. Mm-hmm. The night and day tells its very tale of paradise. Where oh, roses do, no, though no, I dream in vain? Oh, in my heart. <laughs> It will remain, remain my thought of melody. Oh, memory, oh, memory.
0: Oh, He memory. actually deepens the feeling of the song. He gives it a, an emotion that goes beyond what is already pretty much a perfect piece of songwriting, an inspired piece of songwriting.
1: Louis Armstrong did a number called Black and Blue. Mm-hmm. Talk about the significance of that song.
0: Well, Black and Blue was a a song written for a review by Fats Waller uh, in the 20s. And the theme of the song was one that was very current then and was for many decades before and for many decades later, which was about the color lines within the African-American community. The song is sung by a dark-skinned woman who has lost her man to a light-skinned woman. And she's saying, what did I do to be so black and blue? That's the context of the theatrical review in which the song was initially created and known. And, you know, at the Cotton Club, they had what was, I think, called the the brown paper bag standard. You could not be in the chorus unless your color was no darker than a brown paper bag. They wanted all very light skin, tan, tan women if you were black you did not work at the Cotton Club, at least in the chorus line. And so Armstrong takes this song and he records it and simply by the force of his interpretation it becomes the first genuine protest song in the history of of the, the mainstream recording. There were folk tunes and and things that were arcane. This was a popular tune by a popular artist and suddenly it was about race in terms of white and black. Now some of the lyrics when we look at it now are old fashioned or even distasteful. I'm white inside, but that don't help my case. You wouldn't you wouldn't write something like that now. But it didn't matter, because what mattered was Armstrong's performance, his just completely embracing this idea about the idiocy of of segregation and of condescending to people because they have dark complexions. That's what the song is about. That's what the song means when Ralph Ellison turned it into the primary metaphor at the beginning and the end of Invisible Man, his great novel, and it's what we see coming alive in the audience in Africa, in Ghana, when he sang it for Edward R. Murrow's CBS cameras and uh, Prime Minister Nkrumah is in the audience with Tears glistening in his eyes. Harry Armstrong sing Black and Blue, one of the great performances of that
2: piece. (laughs) How will it end? Ain't got a friend. My only sin is in my skin. What did I do to be so black and blue?
1: In your book, *Sachmo*, you divide it basically into two parts. It's the entertainer is artist, and mm-hmm. then the artist is entertainer. And this r- division really has particular significance, I think, for Armstrong.
0: Yeah. I, at the time I wrote the book, it seemed a case that had to be argued because... The, the approach to Armstrong was that he was this fantastic artist, this incomparable genius of the 1920s, and then he became popular and just became a kind of public clownish performer on Ed Sullivan. I mean, Gunter Schuller was himself a distinguished Composer and has had a, a great deal of influence in jazz and third-stream music and so forth, wrote in his very important book, Early Jazz, that Armstrong should have been given by the government some kind of a stipend so that he didn't have to demean himself by singing Hello, Dolly! night after night, which, of course... <laughs> You'd have had to put a gun to Armstrong's head to get him off the road, and he loved doing that. He loved audiences, and, and, and it, to me it shows a complete misunderstanding of the man's genius, because Hello, Dolly! he transfigured just as mightily as he did Black and Blue. But I mean, uh, is
1: there anybody else we can stand to hear sing that
2: song?
0: Nobody, No, nobody, absolutely not. When Frank Sinatra uh, recorded it, he sang uh, Hello, Lewis. No, he made it his own song, and in fact, if we can talk about that song for a second, when he recorded it uh, in Chicago, David Merrick was about to mount the show on Broadway, and in those days, they would sort of try to get an important performer to sing a song, hoping that it would, you know, boost sales. So they they contracted for Armstrong to do it. He was not particularly excited when he saw the lead sheet. The producer and everybody involved seems to have thought, the band guys all thought that the flip side was gonna be the hit, which was got a lot of living to do from Bye Bye Birdie. And the piece Hello Dolly, when the show opened, was performed as a dirge without real tempo was, hello, as Dolly makes her entrance down the grand staircase. And the show was in trouble, it was closing, and then suddenly this Armstrong record takes off, it becomes the number one record in the country, the only record that year in 64 displacing the Beatles. Imagine being displaced by a guy who made his first hit in 1926. I mean, this is, you know, you're never gonna see another guy who has hits that far away from each other.
2: I can't tell, darling. You still, still growing, you still growing, you still going strong I feel the room sway, but the band's playing One of our old-favorite songs from way back when So, take
0: In tribute to Armstrong's recording, they rearranged it for the show. It became a hot number, a rhythmic number. And David Merrick's uh, way of thanking Armstrong was to put him in the movie.
1: The only watchable part of the, the only movie. watchable <laughs> part
0: of that dreadful movie, quite agree. But that was a way of acknowledging the fact that he saved the show in addition to making something of the song.
1: Why are people so offended by popularity?
0: Hell, I don't know. I just don't know. I was in high school when uh, Decker put out an album called the rare Louis Armstrong, something like that. It was all pieces from the 30s. Dan Morgenstern, a great critic, yeah. mentor of mine, wrote the liner notes in which he just said, almost matter of fact, that these were among the greatest recordings of Armstrong's career. And yet the album was called Rare Louis Armstrong. This stuff from the 30s had been dismissed because it was a big band, because it was as much singing as trumpet player, because they were popular. And yet you listen to them, and they are among the most mind-blowing performances in jazz history. Now everybody can see this that but then after those were conceded people would put down the 40s band or they would put down the 50s band you know the first edition of the uh grove encyclopedia of jazz basically says his career ends in 1946 musically and everything after that he's just a showman this is just absolute nonsense i cannot tell you what armstrong story oh please this is something that i'll never forget there was a uh, an event, I forget what this occasion was, but it had to do with opening up the Armstrong Museum or the Armstrong House in in Queens, in Corona. And there was a cocktail party early on, and everybody in the jazz world was there. I mean, a lot of musicians, a lot of critics. It was just such great fun. You just knew everybody. And we were all drinking and eating canapes and having a grand old time. And uh, during the whole time, they're playing Armstrong recordings in, in the background. And they go into, this is 1956 recording of When You're Smiling a record that is sort of a real cult item among Armstrong fanatics, but that was also very popular. The public dug it. And I am standing with a group of people, Like, and as it starts, we, we just stop talking. And you can hear around the room people stop talking when the trumpet solo gets underway. And somebody on the podium gets up there finally to introduce the program. And... He says two words and somebody shouts at him, not yet. (laughs) And he just stood there and everybody stood there until that recording was finished. They did not whip it off, off the machine. And then somebody said, now, it's that kind of performance, you can't interrupt it. that's so overwhelmingly powerful and emotional it completely cuts the 1929 version which is you know that's a masterpiece because it's 1929 because only us very hip people knew about it but 1956 recording is is unquestionably superior and so many of the recordings he made in the 50s his version of blue turning gray over you this is a recording that he did for a, also mid-50s album of fat's waller tunes and it's just one of his great trumpet solos and there's so many instances of this almost almost right up until the end. In
1: 1947, one of my favorite songs, Do You Know What It Means to Miss New Orleans? And if you didn't know, you just have to listen to
0: Louis Armstrong and you will. Absolutely, this was a piece that uh, he did in a movie, a a really silly movie called New Orleans. It was the only film that Billie Holiday was contracted to be in, and when she got out there and realized she was playing a maid, she walked off the set after a couple days filming and never returned, which is why her part disappears so quickly, but there's the music.
2: Do you know what it means To miss New Orleans And miss it each night and day I know I'm not wrong The feeling's getting stronger The longer I stay away Miss the moss-covered vines The tall sugar pines Where mocking boys used to sing I'd like to see the lazy Mississippi a hurrying into spring over oh, the my gross
0: memories. The music is real, too. even when the script is foolishness. When you hear him sing, he's always for real. It doesn't matter what he does. He made a record for the Disney Company in his very last years. I think it was called Disney Songs the Satchmo Way. And he does Chim Chim Cherie. I mean, the arrangement is as hip as the version John Coltrane made in the same decade, all on a, on a very uh, modal-styled vamp. And my favorite solo is on the Ballad of Davy Crockett. I mean, he just sings that song as though he were having more fun than anybody in the world. And to s- dismiss that as some kind of buffoonery is to completely miss the fact of Armstrong's approach to music, which is that he is an extremely generous man. He's generous in every way, and he's generous to the culture and everything that he embraces, he makes better. He makes part of himself. He is superior to nothing. That's part of his genius. He knows how great he is. I mean, we know that from his letters. We know it from his memoir. We know it from private interviews that were recorded. He never had any doubt. Even when black band leaders like Fletcher Henderson wouldn't let him sing because of the gravel in his voice. He, you know, he said Henderson had a million dollars in the band. And he never even knew it. He knew how good he was, but he had this incredible humility in the way he approached material. He never approached it condescendingly. He looked at it and said, what can I do with this? And he almost always could do something. You met him. You brought him to your college, Grinnell? Grinnell in Iowa, yeah. Tell
1: us about that.
0: Oh, boy. The college was having a a colloquium with about 50 of the most celebrated artists and intellectuals in the country. Ralph Ellison was there, Marshall McLuhan, Rauschenberg, S.I. Hayakawa. I mean, it was pretty amazing stuff. And it was just panels for two or three days of all these people. And I was the conscience programmer and, and film. And they asked me to uh, get somebody really special, because this was going to be a special weekend. It was a Saturday night dance you know so my first choice was Armstrong I never thought we had a chance but one thing bookers hate is an empty night so you always go on that chance so as it happens Armstrong had you know almost every night in the week a book somewhere in the Midwest but that night happened to be free so we got him at a very reasonable price I was beside myself I couldn't believe it I was what 19 I was going to meet Louis Armstrong. <laughs> I was bringing him to Grinnell he showed up with the band. It was in the boys' gym. Or actually, it was, it was in the gym, but the band was in the boys' locker room. That was, where they, that was our green room in those days. There were, the, all the musicians are back there. And I, I walk over to Marty Napoleon, the pianist, and he was like me. He was like a kid who couldn't believe his luck of playing with Armstrong. And he'd been in the band for years. Oh, It was amazing talking to these guys. They were just all so still turned on. And he said, oh, Pops is going to love you. So we wait until the doctor finishes with him, and then he, uh, he walks over to him and he says, Pops, this young man, he knew my name. Said, I mean, I told it to him, but you don't expect him to, to remember. He said, this young man, his name's Gary Giddens, and he, he, he loves you and would really like to meet you. And so he came over to me and we shook hands, and it was an awesome moment. I mean, a jolt went through my whole body. And I remember feeling some disquiet Because first of all, he had skin grafts on his upper lip when he was younger and used to play all those high C's. He tore it one too many times, and they had a stitch up with skin taken from another part of his body. In pictures, they would sort of clean it up a little bit, but seeing it in person, it was a pretty disquieting-looking scar. And also, he he had a sort of a gray pallor. Uh, He looked his age. He looked a little older than his age. And I thought, you know, why is he still on the road? Why is he in Grinnell, Iowa? And there was a series of steps that you walked up to mount the stage, and the stage was brightly lit, but the steps were in complete darkness, completely in shadow. And I stood back and I watched the guys, Armstrong being the last of them, climb the stairs. And by the time Armstrong headed for the stairs, I went out to the front. And when he came out of the dark, it was a different guy. His color was back. He had that smile. He had that energy. He was radiant. I mean, my friends and I, we were just, I mean, we still talk about it. Uh, it was just, you know, I, I remember somebody saying, he's playing as though he were auditioning for a gig. He couldn't play every tune at that period. What he would do is he'd play a piece, and then he'd say, now we're going to have, you know, the drum bonus and then he'd walk back. Where you could hardly see him in the shadow, and he would rest up for four minutes while the trombonist did it, and then he would come back. But when he played, he gave everything. It was. It was unbelievable.
1: Okay, finally, Gary, three three pieces for someone who's never heard Louis Armstrong to give them a sense.
0: Well, you certainly want to hear West End Blues from 1928. That's sort of like jazz is Beethoven's Fifth, and that's that just a piece you have to know. From the 1930s, I think I would choose Swing That Music from the big band period, and then from the 50s, I'd go with When You're Smiling, but you have to really hunt to find a Louis Armstrong record that's disappointing. There is a record of country tunes I don't much care for. There's a few concert records that probably should never have been released or released after his death. But for the most part, if you get a good collection of the the so-called Hot 5 and Hot 7 records, I mean, you, you can't really go wrong. But warning, Armstrong, like Ellington, is pretty much an addiction. And you know, once you really fall into it, once you really begin to get it, uh, you want to hear it all. You really do.
1: Gary Giddens, thank you so much. My I pleasure. appreciate it. Thank you. That was award winning jazz writer Gary Giddens talking about the great American musician, singer, and artist, Louis Armstrong. You've been listening to artworks produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Stardust, Hello, Dolly. And What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue? Use Courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. Excerpts from Do You Know What It Means to Miss New Orleans? And When You're Smiling. Use Courtesy of Universal Music Enterprises. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, David Seidler... Talks about the inspiration for his Academy Award winning screenplay, The King's Speech. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.